If you love the Murder Minute app and the Murder Minute podcast, we have good news. For more true crime anytime, download the Himalaya app and subscribe to Murder Minute for ad-free early episodes and killer bonus content. Our first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. What are you waiting for? Download Himalaya and subscribe to Murder Minute. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the New York Ripper and the murder of Carrie Brown, also known as Old Shakespeare. But first, your true crime headlines. A jury in Ohio has found Quinton Smith guilty of aggravated murder in the shooting deaths of two police officers in 2018. Officers Tony Morelli and Eric Joring responded to a 911 hang-up call at Smith's residence on February 10, 2018. The call had been placed by Candace Smith, the wife of Quinton Smith, who testified that she had placed the 911 call after her husband had punched and choked her. She told jurors that she watched as her husband set two handguns on the couch near the door as the officers knocked. And she said that she told the officers that her husband had a gun just moments before shots rang out. Officer Juring died at the scene, and Officer Morelli died later that day at the hospital. It took jurors less than four hours to decide that Smith was guilty on all five charges against him, included aggravated murder and domestic violence. During the trial, the jurors heard that Quentin Smith suffered from schizoaffective disorder and PTSD, but the judge told them that they were not allowed to consider that in determining guilt. Those mitigating factors will be considered during the penalty phase of the trial, as jurors decide whether or not to recommend the death penalty. Jurors also heard victim impact statements from the widows of both officers and from Morelli's grown daughter. It is believed to be the first case in Ohio where jurors have heard victim impact statements from the prosecution. Prior to the passage of a victim's rights bill in 2018, only the defense was allowed to offer mitigating factors to the jury in death penalty cases. The trial is underway in Colorado for a man accused of murdering the mother of his child. Kelsey Barreth was last seen on Thanksgiving Day last year as she shopped for groceries with her young daughter at a Colorado supermarket. Afterwards, she dropped off her daughter at the home of Patrick Frazy, her fiancé and the father of her child. It is believed that Frazy murdered Barreth at that time and then disposed of her body, which has never been found. In February of this year, an Idaho nurse who was having an affair with Frazy pled guilty to evidence tampering related to Barreth's disappearance. That woman, Crystal Lee Kenny, told police that she had been asked three times to help kill Barreth, and that Frazy had asked her to help clean up piles of blood after he killed Barreth. An arrest warrant for Kenny stated that she watched along with Frazy as they burned Barreth's body on Frazy's farm. Frazy has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder and three counts of solicitation to commit first-degree murder. He will receive a life sentence without possibility for parole if he is convicted of first-degree murder. He has pleaded not guilty. A Georgia man was arrested after calling 911 
to report that his marijuana had been stolen. On November 1st, DeKalb County 911 received a call from 21-year-old Dante Michael Bellamoli, who requested the help of a police officer after his marijuana had been stolen. Cannabis in Georgia is illegal for recreational use. Narcotics officers responded to the call and during their investigation discovered that Bellamoli had cocaine and drug paraphernalia on him. He was arrested and charged with possession of a controlled substance and possession of drug paraphernalia. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the Ripper in New York and the murder of Carrie Brown. But first, a quick break. Have you thought about talking to someone but are unsure of where to start? BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professionals specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. Join BetterHelp and get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's a truly affordable option. And Murder Minute listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code MURDERMINUTE. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started now. Go to betterhelp.com slash murderminute. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash murderminute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the New York Ripper and the murder of Carrie Brown, also known as Old Shakespeare. On April 23, 1891, 57-year-old prostitute Carrie Brown hadn't eaten for three days. Carrie Brown had several aliases, not uncommon for her profession, but her friends called her Old Shakespeare. In her youth, Carrie had been an actress, and with enough drinks in her, she had a habit of quoting the bard in her thick English accent. Carrie Brown was an alcoholic, working on the east side of New York City, just trying to make enough money for a drink and a place to sleep for the night. When she didn't earn enough for both, she chose the drink and often found her bed behind bars for drunk and disorderly. On the afternoon of April 23rd, Carrie told her friend Alice, a fellow prostitute, that it had been days since her last meal. Alice bought Carrie a sandwich, and that night the two friends had dinner at a Christian mission. When they finished their meal, Alice and Carrie parted ways and went to work. At around 8.30 p.m., Alice spotted Carrie with a John that she knew as Frenchie, and later with another man, Isaac Perringer, who they also called Frenchie. Finally, between 10.30 and 11 p.m., Carrie Brown escorted her last customer for the night to the seedy East River Hotel on Water Street. 
a particularly disreputable establishment known to locals as the House of All Drinks. Carrying with them a pail of ale, Carrie and her John checked in to room 31, registered as C. Nick and wife. The next morning, the night clerk noticed that the key to room 31 had not been returned. He went upstairs and knocked, but there was no answer. He tried the handle, but the door was locked. Taking out his master key, he opened the door. There on the bed was the disemboweled body of Carrie Brown. She was covered in stab wounds, naked from the armpits down, and her clothing was wrapped around her head as if the killer didn't want to see her face as he worked. An X, or a cross, was carved on her left buttock, and next to her body on the blood-soaked bed lay the murder weapon, a sharpened wood-handled table knife. The clerk quickly contacted police at Oak Street Station, and soon detectives and reporters descended on the squalid hotel. Mary Minter, the housekeeper in the East River Hotel, recalled seeing Carrie come in with her last customer of the night. She described the man as a foreigner who was about 32 years old, around 5 feet 8 inches in height, of slim build with a long sharp nose and a heavy mustache of a light color. He wore an old black derby hat, the crown of which was much dented. Next door, at the Glenmore Hotel, another east side flop house, the night clerk, Mr. Kelly, said that he saw a man matching Mary Minter's description come into the Glenmore Hotel shortly after 2 a.m. The man's hands and clothes were smeared with blood. And in a thick German accent, the man asked for a room. But he had no money, so Mr. Kelly turned him away. News of the brutal murder spread quickly, and old Shakespeare was soon front-page news, along with another familiar name. By the next morning, April 25, 1891, the New York Herald wrote, Ghastly butchery by a Jack the Ripper, Murder and mutilation in local Whitechapel almost identical with the terrible work of the mysterious London fiend, strangled first, then cut to pieces. The New York Times headline read, Choked, then mutilated. A murder like one of Jack the Ripper's deeds. The New York Commercial Advertiser wrote, She was one of the same class and was slain in the same manner as the Whitechapel victims. The unfortunate creature was strangled and disemboweled. The strong probability that London's fiend, in human form, Jack the Ripper, has transferred his field of operations from Whitechapel to the slums of New York has sent a thrill of horror throughout the metropolis. The slaughter of the woman Carrie Brown, or Shakespeare, as she was familiarly known, in a squalid room on the fourth floor of the East River House a disreputable dive on the corner of Water and Catherine Streets in many particulars closely resembles the work of the Whitechapel fiend, 
and the police are strongly of the opinion that he is really in New York. The main difference which this crime presents from the London butcheries lies in the fact that the New York victim was strangled, whereas the murderer's work in London was invariably begun by cutting the throat. The woman had been strangled to death, then had followed the mutilation, which connected the crime with Jack the Ripper's handicraft. Beginning near the end of the spine, the murderer had cut deeply frontward to a point on the lower part of the abdomen, and then back again to where he started. What he had cut away had disappeared. He must have taken it with him. There was no sign of it in the room. Disemboweling had followed this awful surgery. This completed, the murderer had left his mark on the body. On the back of the left hip, in jagged lines, more than a foot long, he had scored a rude cross. On the door, the murderer had made his mark again. The boards which formed the wall bore such a cross as he had cut on the body, scratched in with the point of a knife. The idea that Jack the Ripper, or even an imitator, might be loose in New York City transformed the murder of a prostitute, which would have otherwise received little attention, into a press sensation. Soon, every newspaper was connecting Carrie Brown's murder in New York to London's Ripper, and citizens were beginning to panic. This posed a challenge to NYPD Chief Inspector Thomas Byrnes who had publicly criticized Scotland Yard for its failure to capture Jack the Ripper in London. The chief inspector remarked that the London police had sent him a photograph of one of the Ripper's letters. The signature boldly scrawled across the page with its return address from hell. According to the New York Times, Inspector Byron said, quote, it would be impossible for crimes such as Jack the Ripper committed in London to occur in New York and the murderer not be found. Byrnes boasted that if Jack the Ripper had been in New York City, he would have been caught within 36 hours. And after the Ripper-like murder of old Shakespeare, the newspapers were quick to remind him of it. Inspector Byrnes had been a pivotal figure in the development of the New York Police Department. He led the transition of policemen from being little more than gangs with badges and sticks to organized crime investigators. The 2013 television documentary Secrets of New York credited Thomas Byrnes as the man who invented America's modern detective bureau. But Thomas Byrnes had questionable methods. The term third degree was coined due to Byron's long and brutal interrogation of suspected criminals that amounted to extracting confessions through physical and psychological torture. In response to the pressure from the press, Inspector Byron's ordered the police to flood the area and within days had rounded up a few suspects. A prostitute who had been drinking with Carrie Brown the night before the murder and the East River Hotel housekeeper Mary Minter were taken into custody for questioning and held for their own protection 
against the killer returning to silence any witnesses. Both women told police about seeing Carrie Brown with a man they knew as Frenchie. With little else to go on, police began rounding up suspects with the nickname. But Frenchie was a common moniker in the East Side, so police and the press organized the suspects by number. Frenchie number one, Frenchie number two. But when the Frenchies were shown to the witnesses, none were recognized as the man last seen with Carrie Brown. Inspector Byrnes became frustrated with his eyewitnesses' information and failure to identify one of his suspects, complaining that, quote, the people depended upon to give it were a drunken lot, without enough intelligence to remember how the man looked. In the end, Inspector Byrnes released all of the Frenchies except one. Amir Ben Ali, a French-speaking Algerian who had been staying in room 33 of the East River Hotel, across the hall from Carrie Brown's room 31. Police claimed that there was blood leading to his door, on the door frame and on the doorknob, both on the outside and on the inside, though none of the reporters who had been on the scene saw this. The police also claimed that this Frenchie had been found with blood on his socks and under his fingernails. The explanation the police gave for why the eyewitnesses failed to recognize Amir Ben Ali and the fact that he didn't match the John's description was that he was not the John at all. They theorized that after the John left room 31, Amir Ben Ali had crept across the hall, robbed and murdered Carrie Brown, then returned to his room. Just five days after the murder, Chief Inspector Barnes confidently announced that Amir Ben Ali, a.k.a. Frenchie, was the killer. Amir Ben Ali was arraigned on April 30th and held in the tombs until his trial opened on June 24th, 1891. The court appointed Abraham Levy as Amir Ben Ali's counsel, as he could not afford an attorney, and found an interpreter from Algeria so that Frenchie, who spoke little English, could at least appear to participate in his own defense. District Attorney Delancey Nicol and Chief Assistant Francis Wellman prosecuted. Inspector Byrnes and four officers testified. Character witnesses from the area testified for the prosecution that Amir Ben Ali led a debauched life and frequented the sordid hotel. The prosecution called three medical experts who testified that an analysis of Ben Ali's fingernail scrapings, his socks, and of the blood stains in room 31, room 33, and the hallway showed, quote, intestinal contents of food elements, all in the same degree of digestion, all exactly identical, suggesting that their blood analysis showed that all of the blood stains resulted from blood flowing from the abdominal injuries of Carrie Brown. On cross-examination, 
the experts were not able to state with certainty that the blood was even human. The defense argued that the blood evidence was circumstantial, at best. But Frenchie proved a terrible witness in his own defense. On the stand, Ben Ali sometimes seemed to understand English. At other times, he claimed not to understand questions even after they had been translated into his native dialect, making it easy for the prosecution to get Frenchie to contradict himself on cross-examination. A New York Times article wrote, quote, At times the man was dramatic, at other times tears poured down his cheeks, and at all times his gestures were interesting, sometimes ludicrous. He frequently swore before Allah that he was innocent. But Frenchie was not believed. The jury left to deliberate on July 3, 1891. At one point during the two-hour deliberation, the jury was polled at 11 in favor of first-degree murder and just one holdout for second-degree murder. With the jurors anxious to be done by the 4th of July, they agreed to return a unanimous verdict of guilty of second-degree murder. And on July 10, 1891, Amir Ben Ali was sentenced to life imprisonment in Sing Sing. Later, one juryman commented that he believed that the jury had been packed and that the Ben Ali verdict had not been fair. After he was convicted, the press dropped their theory that Kerry Brown had been murdered by Jack the Ripper and instead focused their efforts on freeing the man that they believed had been falsely convicted of murder. Word on the street was that Frenchie had been framed. Some believed that the murderer was a blonde sailor who sailed for the Far East. Others still believed that old Shakespeare really had been murdered by Jack the Ripper, but no one believed that Amir Ben Ali could possibly have been the famous Whitechapel killer. Francis Coles, also known as Carity Nell, was murdered by the Ripper in February of 1891, just two months before Carrie Brown and her John checked into room 31. Travel time from London to New York by steamer took roughly one week. Many believed that Jack the Ripper had seen Inspector Byron's comments in the papers and accepted his challenge and that the police had framed Amir Ben Ali just to save Bayern's reputation. When his appeals failed, Amir Ben Ali became depressed, and in 1893, he was moved from Sing Sing to the New York State Asylum for Insane Criminals at Matiawan. Journalist Jacob Reese continued to champion Ben Ali's innocence even after Ben Ali's own lawyers had given up. Frenchie is crazy, they told the journalist, and is better off where he is than at liberty. But Jacob Reese refused to give up. As a police reporter for the New York Sun at the time of the murder, Reese had been among the first to arrive on the scene and he knew firsthand that there had been no trail of blood. 
As years passed, Chief Inspector Thomas Byrnes found it increasingly difficult to fight reformers and his links to the corruption of Tammany Hall. And in 1895, the new New York police commissioner, future President Theodore Roosevelt, forced Thomas Byrnes to resign. Finally, in 1902, the work of several journalists, including Jacob Rees and Charles Edward Russell, finally convinced the governor that the blood evidence in the Kerry Brown case had been either accidentally or deliberately tampered with, and that the state had convicted an innocent man. Nearly 11 years after the murder, Governor Benjamin B. Odell received a pardon application for Amir Ben Ali, based on new evidence. A Danish man who matched the description of the John given by both the hotel housekeeper Mary Minter and Mr. Kelly had worked for several weeks in the spring of 1891 at Cranford, New Jersey, about 15 miles from the city. He had been absent from Cranford on the night of the murder on April 23, 1891, and disappeared entirely several days later. Among the objects left behind in his room were a bloody shirt and a brass key bearing a tag with the number 31, matching the keys used at the East River Hotel. Police had never provided an explanation for the missing key, nor had they ever attempted to find the John that Carrie Brown was last seen with. Reporter Jacob Rees submitted a witness affidavit based on his direct observation at the East River Hotel. He stated that he had not seen blood on the door of either room 33 or 31, or in the hallway. The governor was convinced. On April 16, 1902, after being imprisoned for 10 years, 9 months, and 10 days, Amir Ben Ali, also known as Frenchie, was declared innocent. And on April 22, 1902, he was released. He left the United States and returned to his native Algeria shortly afterwards. The murder of Carrie Brown was never solved. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Murder Minute. And now, for early ad-free episodes and bonus content, follow us and subscribe on Himalaya.